This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Reverend Charles Telfer is Assistant Professor of Biblical Languages at Westminster Seminary, California. He's a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, an experienced seminary professor, a missionary, and fluent in several languages besides Greek and Hebrew. He's presently writing on Campigius Fitringa's commentary on Isaiah. He joined the faculty in 2011, and he joins us today for Office Hours. Hi, Charles, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Well, we are excited to have you on the faculty, and this is an opportunity for us to get to know you, and particularly for the listener to get to know you a little bit. We've already talked once before. We met on a desert island and looked at your reading list. That was enjoyable. Yeah, we had fun. So tell us, from where do you come? I come from Illinois. I was born in Iowa, but raised in a small town in Illinois called Princeton. It's about two hours west of Chicago. For a second, I had a vision you were going to say, I come from Illinois, and I was raised in a log cabin. I don't know why I thought Land that. of Lincoln. <laughs> Speaking of log cabins, the first log cabin in Bureau County, which is the county I came from, was the front end of my father's farm. Right in front of the farmhouse is a marker noting the place where the log cabin existed. But it didn't stand when you were being raised. No, it didn't stand. That would have been an interesting place to do your time out. Yes, it was. I'm sure it would have. Could go stand in the... The woodshed. In the woodshed, yeah, the log cabin. So you grew up in Illinois, and where did you you go to school? I went to college at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and I studied history there, and I was the recipient of a scholarship to study at the University of Costa Rica, so I studied there for a semester and came back and took a second major in Spanish. I had a double major. Wow, so your international career began early in your life. Oh, by all means. Tell us how you were raised in church and your Christian journey. I was raised in a very liberal Protestant church, tragically liberal, and in my teenage years, I went through a time of spiritual questioning, kind of turning east particularly. Herman Hesse was a big influence on me at that time, and I had a friend who was a Christian, and I used to give him quite a hard time when we were in high school, but as I came into my junior and then senior year in high school, what he was saying about God God as our creator and our fallen state and Christ is our only hope made more and more sense to me. And so it was during that final year in high school, about halfway through, where the Lord really got a hold of me and brought me to Christ as my Savior. When you say East, Buddhism particularly was particularly attractive to me. Herman Hesse was one of those figures who was very, very popular in the 70s, 80s, and has kind of forgotten Siddhartha, Steppenwolf, Damien, a lot of kind of the Eastern and the Western coming together. The Magister Ludi was a fascinating book. It's kind of Eastern point of view for Westerners. Yeah, we're not too far apart in age, and I remember that. So it's interesting you say that. I hadn't heard that name, Herman Hesse, for a long time, but I remember when it was very fashionable to be reading Hesse, and there were lots of devotees. So that's interesting that you got involved in that as a high schooler. I had a junior English teacher. He was a transcendentalist, and that's his perspective, and he had us reading the American Transcendentalist, but he was Jewish. And I, I would say probably, in terms of means, if it wasn't for that Jewish high school teacher, I wouldn't be a Christian today, that he really slapped me awake intellectually and got me thinking about bigger things and questioning and kind of on a spiritual journey for which I'm very, very grateful. He was an excellent teacher. And what happened as you went off to college? How did you come to an Orthodox Christian faith? 
from halfway through my senior year, right around my 18th birthday, it, the Lord produced a big change in me at that point in time. And my friends said that I'd become a Jesus freak, and I'm sure that was the case, thankfully. So I went to college, and I jumped in straight off with Christian ministry and Christian groups on campus. I was involved with Chi Alpha, which was connected with the Assemblies of God. The friend who led me to Christ was from a Pentecostal background, and I spent seven years in the Assemblies of God church and student ministry with the Assemblies, and then also with Youth with a Mission. That Youth with a Mission had a big impact on me. I had a chance to be with them on some of their short-term work in Mexico and in Guatemala, and, and particularly in Spain at, during the 82 soccer game, the World Cup soccer games in Spain. That was a big formative experience for me to be involved in evangelistic work, and then to see the internationality of the church. There were people from maybe, I forget, 110, 120 different countries. The amazing diversity of people following and serving Christ and the passion that they had was remarkable to me. It just gave me a vision for the internationality of Christ Church. What happened after college? My wife and I married in 85, just before I finished college. And then we spent a semester in South America, kind of encircled South America by bus, visiting Bible schools, seminaries. That wasn't the easiest trip you've ever taken in your life. $20 a day. Uh, That includes your bus, your hotel, your food for the two of us. Rhonda loves you very much. She does. She was put up with a a great lot of hardship. I mean, I think that might be one of the most amusing things I've ever heard. We circled South America on a bus. It was a wonderful (laughs) time. She wrote a book about it. It's called uh, Along the Andes. And uh, it was a marvelous tale of God's kind dealings with us. See, I did not know that. That's great. Is it available? We published it for my Spanish students. We'll get to that later. Uh, But it's not available at Barnes & Noble, if that's what you mean. Okay. I'll ask Rhonda. I'd like to see that. You can enjoy it. I'm sure you would. So what happened next? We came back to the States with an eye to going to seminary. And although I redo it nowadays, at that time, my decision was to go to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. So we moved to Massachusetts. And in God's providence, I had the opportunity to teach at Gordon College and to study at Gordon-Conwell. So for four years, I was teaching at Gordon College in the foreign language department, two years part-time and then two years full-time. And during those four years, I was studying at Gordon-Conwell. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What were you teaching? I was teaching Spanish. I taught entry-level, second-year, and advanced-level Spanish classes during that time. And when you went to SEM, your vocational interest was pastoral ministry, missions. Where were you headed? Missions was always the focus of our thoughts. And when we finished seminary, then I was a recipient of what was called the Parish Pulpit Fellowship, a quite a generous gift for study abroad, and went with that to Jerusalem. So we were supposed to spend a year in Jerusalem studying at what's now the Jerusalem University College, studying biblical geography, archaeology, historical studies there. And Saddam Hussein decided to make that one semester instead of two. Meaning that the first Gulf War broke out and Scud missiles were being lobbed towards Israel, and there you were. By now, you're beginning to have a family, is it? Yes, we had two children when we went, and the whole thing broke out just a few days before we moved to Jerusalem. And we were staying at a place called Tantur Ecumenical Institute. It's located right on the edge of Bethlehem. So if you walk out one side of the compound, you'll be amongst the Israelis. If you walk out the other, you'll be with the Arabs in in Bethlehem. So it's strategically right between the two communities. And 
It's a bridge. Oh, it really was. And it was a wonderful time, just a tremendous time there, seeing the land and doing some archaeological work, and even a dig there under Amu Mazar, which was a lot of fun. But when they issued gas masks to our little uh, <laughs> our little two-year-old, a gas mask tent, that we said, you know, we probably should go. If I had a chance to live it again, I wouldn't go. We would have stayed because... But at the time, who knows how bad things are going to get, and when you've got children, yeah. He would never have dared to bomb Jerusalem. It's the third holiest city in Islam. So we would have been fine, but we decided to go. What happened next? We took time and took advantage of being in the Middle East. So I took some time apart from my family and traveled then in the West Bank, which is a bit more difficult to travel in, and then did some travels in Egypt and in Greece. And then my family and I had some time together in Rome and then in Geneva and ended up with a little time at Weymont, where Francis Schaeffer had Libri, and then came back to the States. So you are a truly well-traveled, not only gentleman, but family. We've been together in a lot of different places. That's certainly the case. And under a lot of interesting circumstances. Where did your training and vocation take you after your travels and after the Middle East? Well, those studies were designed to parlay into a PhD at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. So we came back to the States with an eye to continuing studies at Westminster. And Ray Dillard was the contact point then, a program in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. And in God's providence, we ended up settling in a church in New Jersey. It was not possible for me to study full-time with two kids and no other financial resources. And we wanted to serve in a church and to have pastoral experience. And we had the invitation to settle as a pastoral intern at the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hackettstown, New Jersey, under Ron Pierce and the session there. And so we were there for a year and a half, and that was a foundational time for us. It was an example of how church is supposed to be, and what does a healthy pastorate look like? What does a healthy session look like? And it deepened our understanding of reform worship and church life, and it was an absolutely fundamental time for us. So you not only have made geographic journeys, but you've also made a significant theological journey by this time. Because when we started our story, your Christian life began in the Assemblies of God, Youth with a Mission. So on the Pentecostal side of evangelicalism, and now here we find you in a denomination with which the listener may or may not be familiar, that's the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, an American confessional Presbyterian denomination begun in 1936, chiefly by the old Princeton and old Westminster theologian and founder of Westminster, J. Gresson Machen. That's quite a journey. And when we come back after this break, I want you to explain for the listener how you got from point A to point B, and we'll do that right after this. Preaching is so important because it's foolish, according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God. People And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. 
When I was an undergraduate, I had the chance to study history and to do a senior honors thesis under Winton Solberg at the University of Illinois. And the title of my paper was Views of the Bible in an Age of Division. It was on biblical inerrancy in the American Reformed churches between the Civil War and the First World War. And so that gave me the chance to study the Princetonians and others in the Congregationalist and Baptistic traditions in terms of the Bible. And I was drawn to the solid thinking as well as to the warm-heartedness, particularly of the Princetonians. When I went to seminary, it gave me a chance to write a series of papers and to study Pentecostal distinctives. So I had a chance, what is this when the Bible talks about speaking in tongues? What is this when it talks about election? There's all this talk in the New Testament throughout the Bible as a whole of election, God's choosing, predestination. What does that mean? I was told, surely that can't mean that God has actually elected particularly individuals to salvation, but I wanted to study that out, and seminary gave me the opportunity to come to definite opinions on that. As we went through the four years, I I was ending up less and less with kind of classic Pentecostal theology and more and more in terms of the Reformed faith. And previous to that, and, and in some ways undergirding all that, was the experience that in my Pentecostal circles, the Christian life could be reduced to a certain narrow experience, and that is Christianity means praying, fasting, spiritual gifts, evangelism, and missions. And I was studying history, I was studying with Marxists, I was being bombarded with studying sociology, all these different perspectives that were fundamentally challenging my Christian worldview, and I was getting no help at all from my Pentecostal context. And it was Francis Schaeffer that was such a such a help to me. Here's a man who seemed to be able to engage the whole of life, art, history, philosophy, and to do so cogently and persuasively and with, uh, with a pastor's heart. And I thought, wow, what does he have that we don't have? And I came to see in time that he had this Reformation worldview. He had Reformed theology underneath what he was doing fundamentally. And that was a great draw to me. And it came to a head in the midst of my seminary studies where my pastor, who was the head of the candidates and credentials, as it were, of the uh, Assemblies of God in New England told me basically I had no future with the Assemblies of God unless my opinions changed. And to me, that was a wonderful day because it made my way clear. I I wanted to be committed to the church, but that day it was very clear to me that in God's providence, I couldn't continue serving in that church connection. And we immediately realigned and joined the local Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And that's something I'd been wanting to do for a long time, but now it was clear that the Lord was leading us to that for doctrinal reasons. And it was just a wonderful time at that particular congregation in Ipswich, Massachusetts. It's quite possible that someone is listening to this who's going through exactly what you went through or something very much like it, because statistically, it's much more likely that someone in this country has a background in Pentecostalism than a background in the theology, piety, and practice of J. Gresham Machen. And so let's walk through some of these issues. You came to Christianity via Pentecostalism, which stresses and teaches and offers apparently a direct replication of the apostolic life and the apostolic experience and the apostolic phenomenon. And they tend to equate what happens in their services with what happened in the apostolic church. And if someone comes along, particularly from our tradition, and says, wait a minute, we have questions about that, we're not sure that what you are experiencing, however useful and valuable it may be to you personally, really is the same thing as what happened in the apostolic period. One of the responses that we are likely to get is, well, 
you're just a deist. You don't really believe that God is active in the world today. So, Charles Telfer, let me put this to you. When you left the AOG and joined that little OPC in Ipswich, did you embrace a form of deism? Or how did you work that out for yourself? Well, one thing, a very small point, is that uh, the Pentecostal congregation that we were part of was smaller than the um, Orthodox Presbyterian congregation that we joined. So okay. it wasn't well, a small Presbyterian, but I understand. But I understand. <laughs> I mean, the typical Reformed church in North America <laughs> That's fine. is less than 100 people. It's true. It's true. But that's good to hear that there's a, a larger-than-average OPC in oh, Ipswich. Very, that's fantastic. Very robust, very robust and vigorous congregation. But that whole discussion has many components to it. But the question is, what can we expect God to be doing? Part of the question is. And we can expect God to be converting people, to be sanctifying people, to be convincing them that Jesus Christ is their only hope in this life and in the life to come. But we can't be certain that God is going to do this or that miraculous act, this wonderful thing. We pray. We pray when people are sick. We pray for them to be healed. And we pray expectantly. We do. We pray with confidence. Sometimes God lifts people up. Sometimes he lets them die. Eventually, in this life, he lets all of us die. And that's just one of the great things that Pentecostalism, at least in its some of its worst form, like the health and wealth gospel, seems to turn a blind eye to. The fact that we cannot avoid death in this life. You came to the conclusion through your study of Scripture that what happened in the apostolic age was, in many important respects, unique to the apostolic age. Certainly that's the case, that God in his providence was doing miracles through the hands of the apostles in order to confirm the teaching, the new teaching that they were giving to his church at that point in time. And just to see that even as we look at Scripture, it's not as though the miraculous is something that's consistent experience of God's people, that generally the miracles take place in and around the time of Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and our Lord and the apostles, that those are the main times when we see God doing marvelous works through the hands of his agents. So in conjunction with decisive acts in the history of redemption, and so they weren't necessarily intended to be permanent or universal. Is that fair? That's definitely the case. When you became a confessionally reformed Christian, you didn't come to think that you were without God in the world or that somehow God has withdrawn from the world, but you came to understand the way God operates in the world, and particularly in saving his people, in a different way. Am I getting close? That's certainly the case. Part of it, in terms of the experiential side of things, there's a certain reaction, and that is people who expect these speaking in tongues, they expect miraculous signs, what ha- happens is often we'll end up fabricating it. So so services become kind of hype sessions. I don't mean this to be offensive to someone from a Pentecostal background who may be listening to this, but the fact of the matter, there are many services where you just turn up the music, just turn up the volume, just turn up the whoop effect, and you can get a certain emotional reaction out of a crowd. Don't you think that some of it is also a matter of re-describing the same phenomena? In other words, when I struggled with this, and I did intensely for a period of time, and was spending a fair bit of time with people in the Pentecostal tradition, praying with them, talking with them, watching them, listening to them, and what I decided after looking at them, a little bit from the outside, but a little bit from the inside, is that we had very similar experiences, but whatever they experienced, they described in apostolic terms. In other words, if something 
something happened to them, they put it in terms of the New Testament, in terms of the book of Acts, and they just made an assumption that what happened to us is identical to what happened in the book of Acts. And if the same thing happened to me, I tended to describe it differently without assuming that it was identical to what happened in the book of Acts. And in point of fact, our experiences weren't all that different. We just described them differently. So as I worked through that, I came to the conclusion that, in fact, whatever my Pentecostal friends were telling me that God was doing or that they had the power to do, it wasn't quite as clear as they were wanting it to seem. I think that's definitely the case. One clear example of that is how we describe God's leading in our lives. Often a Pentecostal person may say, God told me to marry this person, to go to this city, whatever that is. And that's huge, by the way. I mean, and it's not just Pentecostals who talk that way. I mean, that way of talking is almost universal within evangelical Christendom. It's true, but you wouldn't have heard Protestant Christians saying that until the 20th century. It seems to me, at least not those that are in the Orthodox Christian tradition. In the 16th and 17th centuries, among the Protestants, people who gave us the Reformation, you're much less likely to hear them say, the Lord told me X. Now, to be sure, in the 16th century, there was some of that, and it tended to be among the Anabaptists, rather less among the confessional Protestants, the Reformed and the Lutherans. There was some of that here and there, to be sure, but it it certainly wasn't something that they were confessing or teaching or inculcating into their people, right? I agree. And I think that it can often be the case where reflecting on the principles of Scripture and on circumstances and one's own gifting, that one might have a very strong sense that God is leading in a certain direction and to take that action. But the question is how you describe it. So that's an example of two people may have a very similar experience, but one describe it as though God were speaking to them and the other avoid precisely that kind of language. And we like to talk about illumination rather than extra biblical revelation. And so we're not saying that God isn't actively leading, God is isn't actively working in our lives. God isn't providentially arranging things. But we want to be careful to make it clear that we're not getting direct revelations from God apart from His Holy Word. Absolutely. Don't we pray for that before every sermon, even publicly? We pray that God would, by His Spirit, He would open our eyes to the power of what's there in the text and show us the beauties of Christ and impact us with that. And haven't we, by God's grace, experienced that from time to time, that where the Lord grabs hold of our minds and hearts through the power of the presentation of Christ in the preaching. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Thank you for indulging me. And I pressed you on that a little bit just because of my own experience, but also as a pastor, I know that people struggle with this. And for years and years as a young Christian, I was taught very early on, uh, read a paperback by Rosalind Rinker, which taught me that God speaks to me directly in prayer. And I was taught to listen for the still small voice. And of course, the syllogism is pretty brutal, right? Christians hear the still small voice. God isn't hearing the still small voice. How do you avoid the conclusion, right? And uh, it was a great relief to me to find out that, in fact, maybe I still am a Christian, even though I'm not hearing the still small voice, and maybe the whole quest is a little misguided and not actually well-founded in the explicit intentional teaching of Holy Scripture. I'm not saying that the teaching is ill-intentioned, but it's not explicitly or even necessarily implicitly taught in Scripture. Well, and then there's a cost in terms of human life to how that all plays out, that well-intentioned people can become the victims of their own imaginations at that point or the imaginations of others. I've known folk that have gone off to be missionaries in Africa because they heard words, very distinct words from people saying, go be a missionary in Africa. And I've seen the devastation of that as those things don't come true. And then, well, God can't be faithful and children are just devastated by God's unfaithfulness, as it were. 
Yeah, people can even begin to doubt their faith because, well, I had a word and it didn't work out. And okay, well, thank you, as I say, for indulging me in that, I hope, important and useful rabbit trail. So your journey has been geographic and it has been theological. And after seminary, you found yourself serving the Lord as an Orthodox Presbyterian evangelist and doing missions overseas in Northeast Africa. Characterize your time there and your work there for us for just a moment. Well, I was ordained as as an evangelist by the Presbytery of New Jersey in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and I served in a little country to the north of Ethiopia, we'll say, for the purposes of public broadcast. And during that time, our work was planting a church in the capital city and seeking to begin a what we called a Christian study center, where we had a triple track. There was a kind of a broad evangelistic track where we used English classes for evangelistic purposes, and then we had a kind of a general Christian studies track where people were were taught the Bible. And then we had a leadership track, which was more for folk who might end up as leaders or elders or pastors in the church. And those works were established. So we were very grateful for that. Our mission had had a hospital work in a city between the highlands and coastal city of Masawa many years ago. And we were able to restart that diaconal work again. And there was a lot of goodwill that was generated amongst the people and the officials of the country because of that ministry. That was a very important uh, connection with the people. I also was teaching English and at the teacher's training college in order to maintain my visa in the country at that time. And how long were you overseas? We were there for three years, and we came back for the birth of our fourth child, Anna, at the end of that time. And then you pastored an Orthodox Presbyterian congregation in Illinois. Before that, I was pastoring in North Carolina for a time, and then I pastored for nine and a half years in actually Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in uh, suburban Chicagoland. So you're old. <laughs> well, I turned 50 this year. Congratulations. Does that make me old? I guess so. I'm a little more than that. So yes, I can say that. So the Lord's been faithful and you've had a lots of opportunities to serve him in a variety of settings. And now here you are at Westminster Seminary, California in Escondido. Why are you a seminary professor when you were doing so many useful, important things here in North America and in Northeast Africa? Haven't you abandoned your work as a pastor and teacher and an evangelist in this ivory tower in Southern California? For me, the initial draw to the ministry in the context of missions was to be involved in leadership training. To me, that seemed one of the great crying needs of the international church, particularly in the developing world, was for solid, well-trained ministers and leaders. There are flourishing churches throughout the world where there's a great need for ministers. For example, I had a little time to minister just very briefly in Sudan. Well, amongst the New Air people, where 75 years ago or so there was only a few Christian congregations, now there are some 400,000 members of the Presbyterian Church. A large chunk of the tribe is now baptized and part of the Christian Church. But you may have a pastor who's in charge of 20 congregations. So there's a great need for leadership training there. And throughout Latin America, as well, that much of the Protestant church is pastored by leaders who have a minimal formal education in Scripture and theology, or who are weak in their understanding. And I I was always burdened for training of church leaders and preparing them for the work of the gospel ministry. So that's been a a thread that's been a constant in my life. And another thread has been the linguistic interest. Ever since I was in school, I remember the first time I ever saw another language, and that was in fifth grade with Miss Judy, and she presented a picture of a cat and a dog, and it was El Gato and El Perro. And from that point on, I've been 
absolutely fascinated with other languages and with either teaching them or learning them. And I don't think I'll ever give up either teaching or learning both. And that's been a consistent part of my work, both abroad and here through the years. So I was teaching in another seminary in the Chicagoland area for seven or eight years. I was teaching Greek there. So when the opportunity to teach Greek and Hebrew here came up, it seemed a very natural fit because my studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I'm finishing up the PhD, were in Old Testament and Semitic languages there because in Africa I had learned and was able to speak and preach in a a Semitic language and I had a particular interest in Hebrew. So it was a very natural fit to be teaching both Hebrew and Greek here and working in the formation of ministers here. And it's been a wonderful time, not only of the academic instruction, but the personal working with students has been much more, there's been a lot more of it and it's been more rich than I expected. Your job is to teach students the biblical languages. There are a lot of schools where that instruction is being minimized in some places where even it's been eliminated. And here, your full-time job is to teach students the biblical languages. Talk for just a moment about the importance of particularly future pastors really learning the biblical languages so that they can know them and use them on a daily basis in the exercise of their ministry. I think part of the problem is that we are monolingual ourselves. There's an old joke, you know, what's a person that speaks three languages, trilingual, person that speaks two languages, bilingual, what's a person that speaks one language? American, right? Part of the problem is we're so monolingual, we can't appreciate what it means to read another language. Anyone who's done serious reading of another language, let's say of something in German or in French or in whatever other language, you see just how much that is lost in translation. And though we can be very grateful for the excellent Bible versions that we have, in English, there's always something lost. I mean, the poetry, for example, of Isaiah, you, you can't nearly bring all of that into English. So anyone who's serious about studying the biblical text in terms of giving their life to the ministry of the gospel, it's almost a no-brainer that they would want to know these languages profoundly. How could they rest contented if they didn't learn those languages? I, I remember Bradford, William Bradford at Plymouth Plantation at, what is it, 65? He decided he wanted to study Hebrew because he wanted to see the beauty of the Psalms and he wanted to read the Psalms in the beauty of the original. Here's a man who had a desire right up to the end of his life to see the scriptures in their native beauty. There are so many reasons to, to study the scriptural languages. For the accuracy, for the authority that it brings to your teaching when you can see it in the original and speak from that, your ability to interact with the scholarly literature, you're at the mercy of anybody who says, any nickel preacher that says, well, the Greek says this, and how can you refute that if you've never studied Greek or Hebrew? And you also want to get beyond the superficial language studies. Some people are content just to be able to read the words and then they go to a word study book and think that they understand Greek and Hebrew because they can read a dictionary. But the serious study of the biblical languages makes you able to critique what other people are saying and to intelligently read and make decisions about what it does or does not say in the scholarly literature and as you're doing the week-to-week work of expounding biblical passages for your people. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.